All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Liam McCullum Show. Today, I have a great guest on. I've had him on before. His name is Chris Ingot, uh, and I brought him on to talk about uh, the new report by the America's Warrior Partnership about underreported veteran suicide numbers in the VA. Um, so it's it's good to have you on, Chris. Thanks, Liam. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah. So uh, why don't you just for, for people who haven't watched our previous podcast together, I'll, I'll link to that one in the description, but why don't you just introduce yourself for everyone? Yeah, I'm Chris Ingot. I, I grew up here in Montana over in a small town of Rosebud over by Mile City. I uh, joined the Army at 17 years old and served for 12 years. I got out in 2017. Uh, I was injured in Afghanistan uh, when an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, detonated five feet from where I was. Uh, and I've used the VA extensively in Montana uh, for a lot of my aftercare when I got out of the military uh, to try to try to fix a lot of those problems so I could walk normally again. Um, so I'm very intimately knowledgeable about the VA and, and a lot of the issues that are coming out of the VA that many veterans face. So just to, I guess, jump into this report, um, what what did you find in this report? What What is the most telling statistic and, and uh, just kind of break it down for everyone? Yeah, the most telling statistic to me was was the number 44. Um, most people have heard of 22 a day. They've seen the things on social media where, where people are doing 22 push-ups a day for 22 veterans a day. Uh, we've heard the, the number of 22 veteran suicides a day for a very long time, and it, and it means a lot to a lot of people, um, so much so that a lot of people even get it tattooed on their body, and, and they, they have the I got your six tattoos because they really, truly care about a lot of their brothers and sisters that are making it home from the from combat alive, but not actually coming home, and, and the end result is is them taking their own life. And so when we look at 44 a day, almost double what the the national narrative has been, and the VA put out a report that the number is actually 16.7 a, a day, uh, which is which is much lower. And and it's not a, necessarily a fault of the VA when you when you read through the report that America Warrior Partnership put together, and they did it in conjunction with Duke, Duke University. And, and when you see those, those disparities, it's not necessarily that the VA is manipulating numbers, um, but just that the, the data is not accurate when it's being reported. Uh, there's a lot of uh, suicide death certificates that are not being marked as uh, former service members, so they're not being put in the list. There's a lot of, of numbers that are potentially maybe not suicides, uh, but you definitely can tell uh, based on overdose numbers when veterans are, are overdosing and, and dying from, from alcohol overdose or, or drug overdoses, that while it may not be an official suicide, there's still a, a, a problem with mental health in, in our veteran communities where the end result is them taking their own life or, or they pass away. Um, and when we look at whether it's 22 a day, 16.7 a day, or 44 a day, one veteran is too much. You shared this article. Um, it was a statement made by Senator John Tester here in Montana, and he actually celebrated a decrease in veteran suicides around the same time that this report came out. Um, so what led him to uh, celebrate this? How does the VA, I guess, um, uh, calculate these numbers? And um, do you think that this is a result of them maybe changing the definition or something like that just so that they get more funding? What is your assessment of this? I think in this world that the, the VA is not trying to manipulate the numbers uh, because, again, one suicide is too many. 
Uh, and I think everybody at the VA understands that, us in the community understand that, and veterans understand that. So I don't think they're trying to manipulate the numbers to make it look like less veterans are committing suicide. But one of the ways that they're calculating the data, it, all of those suicide uh, death certificates come from county coroners. And if they're marked as a former service member, they get sent to the VA to be calculated within that, that number. If the, if the death certificates do not mark them as a former service member or do not mark them as an actual suicide, then they're not going to be counted within that number. And there's been some other other issues back in 2019. The VA removed everyone who wasn't um, qualified as a Title 32 veteran, um, which means that they have uh, served in combat or they served on active duty for 180 consecutive days. Um, so some of that also includes if you're in the National Guard, if you're in the reserves or you're active duty, those numbers aren't calculated within their report anymore as well. Uh, but the DOD does put out their own suicide report that lists those numbers. So you can still go and find those numbers um, and see that they're, they're still pretty high, whether you're in the service or no longer in the service. Yeah, so you, you wrote an article in the Billings Gazette, an, an opinion piece, um, saying that Tester chose politics over veterans. Uh, what was your argument in that article? Yeah, some of the big things that, that came out of the Mission Act in 2018 was what's called the AIR Commission, the Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission. And what it does is it takes a lot of information from the VA, where are our facilities, where are our resources currently located, and are, are they in the best position to serve the veterans that are in our communities today? A lot of those, those reviews have never been completed. And so when we look at where current resources for the VA are, they're not in the best place to serve our veterans. When we have clinics uh, here in Montana and Plentywood that, that service 90 veterans, and, and that's it. They, they have less than one appointment a day, and we have a full clinic for that. Are, are those resources in the best place? When we have care in the community and, and veterans are allowed to go utilize resources that are outside of the VA to get their care, uh, we should be looking at where are our highest populations of veterans and putting the most resources into those locations, not just increasing the funding, not just building new facilities. Uh, we need to look at strategically where is everything located and can we put it in a better position to serve veterans. New York and Florida is a great example. Many veterans have, have left New York and, and moved to Florida, but the resources in the VA have not followed suit. So the New York still has the same amount of resources, but less veterans. And Florida has increased in their veteran population and their, their resources in the VA have not increased in Florida. So when we look at these, these different resources, um, we need to look at the veterans' life and, and how are we gonna help them? That's what's most important. It's not the politics. It's not the what's gonna make me look the best. That's all ir irrelevant to me. It's what can we do to serve our, better, our veterans better? That's what we need to do. And for people who might not know much about the VA, VA, they've never heard stories about it or they don't have any family members involved, um, can you just maybe explain what it's like dealing with them? Um, and, and maybe it's best uh, to paint this picture by sharing your own experience or experiences that you've heard. Absolutely. And uh, thankfully in Montana, that's probably not necessarily the case where there's not too many people in Montana that don't have a veteran family member or friend or, or somebody that they know that, that's been in the military um, thankfully we don't have that in Montana, but a lot of places we do have that. Um, so when I came home from Afghanistan and I went to the VA, 
um, I got hit by an RPG and, and it messed up my left foot. And it got to the point where I, I really couldn't walk without a walker or a cane. And so the VA did a couple different uh, procedures to figure out kind of what's going on. And they, they saw that my plantar tendon in the bottom of my foot had completely severed. So they told me that they were going to authorize a surgery to, to repair that tendon, uh, got everything approved. I went under for surgery and I woke up and they did a completely different surgery and didn't even repair the plantar tendon that they went in to do to begin with. And, and now currently I'm missing three joints out of the middle of my left foot um, that don't allow my toes to bend anymore. Um, there's still no rhyme or reason to why they did it. They just chose that that was the best option and that's what they did. My next two surgeries in the VA were just to correct the complications that came from that first surgery. Uh, during this time, I started to kind of spiral. Um, the, the amount of prescriptions that the VA put me on just continued to increase. Uh, I, it got to the point I was taking 16 prescriptions a day just to try to get through the day. And everything was, was prescribed. I never took anything more than I was prescribed. Uh, but it got to the point where, where I, I attempted to commit suicide myself because I, I just didn't want to live like this anymore. And there was no hope that it was actually going to get taken care of. And so I, I attempted suicide, finally went into the VA and said, I, I got to talk to somebody. I, ne I need to, to see a counselor or a therapist. It's like, I need to talk to somebody because this obviously isn't working for me and I, I need to figure this out. And they told me that they couldn't get me in for, for three months. And I just very clearly told them that if I have to wait three months for care, I'm not going to be here in three months. And it, it, they were able to get me in the next day, but no veteran should have to make that kind of a threat, uh, which, which truly wasn't a threat. It was, it was the reality of the situation. Nobody should have to get to that point just to receive care. Uh, so they finally got me in and I was able to start kind of getting life back on track. And uh, my surgeon at the VA decided that we needed to uh, do one last surgery. And if we did it, the exact way he wanted, I'd be able to walk without a walker or a cane. And, and currently today I can walk without a walker or a cane, but he had to fight within his own system for a year and a half to get that approved because the administration did not want to approve that, that surgery. And that's where we kind of get into what's the VA doing that's causing some of these problems. The Mission Act allowed veterans and their provider to make the decisions for their healthcare, what was best for them and what's in their best medical interest. The VA has put a new board in the middle of that process where the provider makes the recommendation, sends that to this board, that board either approves it or denies it. And then what if they deny it, you have to figure out a different course of action, which has never been in the, the, the policy with the Mission Act or anything prior to the Mission Act. The VA created this uh, just out because they, they thought it was the best way to, to solve the issues. But more veterans are not getting the care that they need, not having the care that's actually in their best medical interest, simply because this board, who has never met them, doesn't include their doctor. It's, it's this board that looks at a chart and says, nope, we don't think that that is the right action, and then you don't get the care that you need. So he fought for a year and a half to get me that last surgery, and finally they, they approved it. And I don't know if it was because they finally saw what he was trying to accomplish or if it was just to get him to stop. Um, they approved it and I, I can walk without a walker or a cane, but a year and a half of, of being in pain and a year and a half of, of either in a wheelchair, if I had long distances to go, uh, or, or a, a walker or cane at 27 years old, that's not much of a life. And you've told me about um, instances in which attaining 
prescriptions is just as difficult. Absolutely. Uh, it, and and I can you just explain the makeup of the VA in in Montana? Um, I know that uh, uh, you you told me a story of someone who who was trying to get prescriptions for I think at least a, a few weeks, and I believe they had to go to Helena to pick them up. Right. Well, the way it operates is um, like here in Billings, we actually do have a pharmacy at the VA. So if you go to your provider and they prescribe you a prescription, you can take that directly to the pharmacy right there, get that prescription filled, and you go away. If you need a refill, you actually have to request that refill from your doctor. The doctor puts the request into Helena, and Helena then sends you your refill. You can't go back to the pharmacy to get your prescription refilled. So you have all these steps just to get something refilled. Uh, whether you have multiple refills on your prescription or not, you could have six refills. You still have to go through that process just to get that refilled. And there's been this backlog in veterans not getting their prescriptions refilled where their, their prescriptions are running out. And most people know with mental health meds or pain management medication, you can't just cut that off cold turkey. You have to, you have to wean yourself off of that medication. And so if all of a sudden your prescription ends simply because the VA didn't refill it like they're supposed to, and how do you move on with life not being able to function uh, appropriately because you don't have the needed necessary prescriptions for your life and for the issues that you're facing every day? Can you just explain a little bit about like uh, your assessment of the Montana delegation to Congress? Um, you, you talked briefly about the Mission Act, but um, I, I know that that Tester was actually fairly good on this. Um, and can you just kind of explain the landscape a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, when the Mission Act first came uh, came about, a lot of people saw it as just trying to privatize the VA, that, that nobody really cared about veterans' uh, health care, and that's why they didn't care about the VA. They just wanted them to go use other resources that are already there, uh, and that veterans would actually receive less care and worse care. Um, VA Choice, which actually came out prior to the Mission Act, that was a real big stumbling block, block to VA Choice was this idea that it's just gonna privatize the VA. And the issue truly stems from the fact that the VA itself cannot handle the amount of veterans that are within their system. So there has to be more options in order for veterans to get the care that they need in a timely fashion. And so as we saw in 2014, the Phoenix VA scandal came out and it showed that the VA was triaging patients in, in this death list, more or less, that uh, we don't have the opportunity to see you, we know that you're terminal, so we're gonna put you on this waiting list where we're gonna schedule your appointment and cancel it, and schedule it and cancel it until you finally pass away because we can't take care of you. Uh, and that, that news story broke in 2014 and it really started to kind of spearhead this idea that if the VA can't handle the load that, that we have, what are we going to do to solve the problem and get veterans the care that they need? And so the VA choice came out of that and then the Mission Act finally came out of that. And what we've actually seen from the Montana delegation overall well, when it comes down to the final vote, most all of our delegates have voted for veterans health care and veteran choice. Um, doesn't mean that they were champions all the way through. Um, in, in the case of Tester, he fought against VA choice uh, because he didn't want to privatize the VA and he believed this narrative that uh, veterans will suffer worse care if they go into the community because those community providers don't know what veterans need and the VA does. And so he pushed, pushed pretty hard against it. In the end, he did vote for it, which was, which is really good. He, he did come to the table to, to increase the options that veterans have. And I've used care in the community many times, and, and I've never received subpar care in, in the community. 
Um, I've never talked to anybody that has received subpar care because um, as a doctor, they take an oath to, to protect and take care of the, their patients. And that's what they want to do. Whether you're a veteran or not, they want to take care of you. Uh, so we have seen our delegates um, come to the table when it comes to our veterans. And so Steve Daines, uh, Matt Rosendale have done amazing things to try to forward some of these uh, some of these issues to get veterans more options to get them the care that they need. Um, and they've even hired on veteran liaisons that can help them with cases in the VA when the VA is not taking care of them and not doing the right thing that allows them to actually have a little bit more um, argument when they go to the VA and say, hey, this isn't working for me. I need something different or, or I need this to be taken care of to have our delegates behind them uh, is something that that Matt Rosendale and, and Steve Daines have both done very effectively. So is the, the Mission Act really changed much considering the new changes that the VA has implemented with this new board? Um, does it actually affect anything? Yeah. So one of the things that happened, and you can actually look at the numbers that Steve, Secretary McDonough has actually put out. Um, you can you can see from 2019, 2020, after the Mission Act was passed, you, you actually can see wait time numbers drop drastically. Um, going from 70, 80, 90 days uh, of a wait period down to uh, 15 to 20 days as your as your wait time. And then COVID hit and, and uh, VA hospitals started to shut down and then um, normal clinics out in the community started to shut down and nobody could get any care. Um, and so there were some issues there that, that aren't necessarily systematic to, to the VA. But in the process of that, the VA is never fully opened they still have a lot of their offices that are closed down are still only remote. And what we've actually seen is in the process of trying to reopen the VA, trying to get this backlog of appointments, just during COVID alone, 20 million veteran appointments were canceled. Uh, we've seen a lot of those appointments have not been rescheduled, have not been taken care of. Many veterans are still waiting for that care. But in the process of, of putting that board into place and, and pulling back on some of those regulations that were put into place with the Mission Act, the VA has found out that nobody's going to hold them accountable. So they've made the changes. Nobody's holding them accountable. So why would they change anything back? So is there any future legislation that maybe CVA or, or you are looking forward to at the national level just to change these policies? Yeah, the, the first one is what's called the GAPS Act, the Guaranteeing Healthcare Access to Personnel Who Served. Uh, Matt Rosendale has actually signed on to the as a co-sponsor to the House uh, bill. And what it does is it takes all those access standards that the, that the Mission Act put into regulation, and it takes, takes all of them and moves them into codified law. Then there's, then there's enforceable, they're, they're punishable. If the VA is not offering you care in the community, if the VA is taking longer than the, the access standards, which is 20 days for a primary care appointment or a mental health appointment, or 28 days for a specialty care appointment, um, if the VA is not following those standards, there's actually teeth behind the, the GAPS Act that allows the, the veteran to, to hold the, the VA accountable to making sure that they get this care. That's the first thing that we're kind of pushing towards. We have a lot of support in, in both the Senate and the House for the GAPS Act. And so we really want to see that. And especially with the, with the PACT Act that passed uh, in the last couple of months, uh, that's, that's going to bring more veterans into the VA, which absolutely deserve to get the care that they, that they need because of the burn pits. But what it's going to do is inundate a system with even more veterans that still cannot take care of them. And if the VA is not going to use the care in the community program the way they're required to use it, 
that's only going to cause more problems in the VA. So the GAPS Act will help try to solidify a lot of that stuff that the Mission Act put into place to make sure even those veterans get that care that they've now been promised. And and what was the name of the burn pit bill? That's called the PACT Act. Okay. Yep. And can you explain a little bit more about that for people who aren't aware of the background there? Um, mm-hmm. I, I followed this a little closely and we've covered it on the podcast before with Scott Horton, but for people who haven't listened to that. Yeah. One of the things we saw, especially that came out of uh, – Vietnam with uh, the Agent Orange and all the stuff that comes out of being in combat with chemicals is there's a lot of health effects that are going to happen that that'll happen down the road that that you just don't necessarily know if they happen because of your military service. And so one of the things that they're trying to to step up and and not have is is veterans struggling with issues that did come from Agent Orange for 30, 40 years, eventually passing away and never getting any benefits because of that. Uh, they want to try to prevent that with the PACT Act. And so when, when veterans uh, were in Iraq or Afghanistan, one of the things that, that we did with our, our trash and, and all that stuff that kind of comes with living in a place for a long time is we would burn it all. We, we had incinerators, we had uh, burn pits where we, all your trash, your batteries, everything got put into that pit and it all got burned so it didn't get in the hands of, of the enemy and then used against us. Uh, batteries could be strung together in order to make uh, improvised explosive devices. So we would burn all of our batteries that, that would no longer hold a charge. And so uh, there's a lot of health effects that are potentially going to come out based on being right next to those incinerators and, and living in close proximity to environmental hazards. And veterans were struggling with a lot of different lung issues, not being able to breathe, having decreased lung capacity, uh, lung cancers that are coming out of out, uh, especially now. And the VA wanted to make sure that we were, well, not necessarily the VA, uh, our delegation were wanting to try to hold the VA to the standard that, hey, this is stuff that came out of these conflicts. This is stuff veterans are struggling with. We need to make sure that we're taking care of them. And so the and pack- as I understand, go ahead. As I understand it, there are a lot of these rare cancers, too, that yes. only seem to be explained by burn pits Correct. Uh, that weren't covered by the VA before this. Correct. Absolutely. And one of the things, too, that um, the Mission Act actually put into place is a kind of a test and learn with the, with the VA to allow them to look into a lot of those different conditions to figure out what's actually going on. Um, is that rare cancer actually from a burn pit? Is it actually from the chemicals that we used over there? Is it from those things? And one of the things that, that the PACT Act doesn't address is actually looking into that and doing more research into um, what did that lung cancer come from? Uh, so we need to be able to really make sure that, uh, that that's exactly what it came from and not just have presumptive conditions that we've never researched to know whether that actually happened. And that's some of the issues that, that the PACT Act actually had was that it didn't have all that research behind it to ensure that the veterans that do have these lung issues, uh, that it did come from a burn pit and it didn't come from smoking for the last 30 years. Um, there, there hasn't been that research done into it. Um, and so we, we really do need to focus on, and now that it has passed, we need to focus on doing that research, making sure that we are we do know what's actually going on and what's happening to the best of our ability. Uh, and that now that we have these, these veterans that are joining the VA because of the PACT Act, that we have options for them to get the care that the PACT Act allows them to get in a timely fashion. 
Now, I am wondering a little bit about um, Montana specifically. I, I know that during the last legislative session, we passed a lot of uh, free market healthcare mm-hmm. legislation. And I'm wondering if this has any impact on veterans and um, the VA. Do you foresee like the the removal of, um, um, you know, certain barriers to entry for, uh, you know, direct primary care or something like that impacting veterans in any way? I, I do see it impacting veterans when veterans get to have more control over their lives and over, over their livelihood and their health. Veterans, I absolutely appreciate that. And it's not just veterans. Everybody appreciates having more, more control over their health care to make the decision what they believe is best for their life. Um, so di- direct primary care absolutely is going to help veterans in our communities that do not want to utilize the VA. Uh, I'm a perfect example of that. Uh, with all the, the issues and the problems that I've had within the VA system, um, I'm not a fan of, of getting my health care taken care of at the VA, which does not mean I want to shut the VA down. If a veteran has had great success in the VA and they've, they've had their problems taken care of and they've been treated very well, I want them to have that option to go to the VA to get that stuff taken care of. But for those that do not want to or those that are farther away from a VA clinic, having that direct primary care that allows them to go see a provider of their choosing uh, work directly with that provider to figure out their payment plan and their schedule and what they need to get taken care of. Um, and having that control is going to be super beneficial uh, for any veteran that, that is looking at potentially using something other than the VA. And I think the certificate of need reforms are really going to be helpful too. I think, uh, you know, less barriers for new hospitals to actually open um, it's going to give fundamentally, it's just going to give veterans and everyone more options. And I know, mm-hmm. um, isn't there a new hospital coming up here in Billings? Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that's partially, um, related to the certificate of need stuff. Yeah, I, I know. Um, I, I read a report that, uh, one of the hospitals was purchased by a different, uh, different conglomerate of hospitals. Um, I also read a report that uh, because certif- certificate of need has been repealed, um, that here in the next couple of years that the Billings is potentially going to have a level five trauma center where we're going to have more options within our community for healthcare, which is only going to benefit our community. Um, whether you're a veteran, whether you're, you're a citizen, whether you, whoever you are, it will absolutely benefit you having more options and, and being able to get that care um, wherever you need it. Now, is there any legislation that you're focusing on at the state level or interested in here at the state level? We do have some. Uh, we're we're going to have another resolution up in uh, Fort Harrison where we're going to be uh, asking our state representatives to, to call on to our federal delegation to hold the VA accountable. Um, a lot of these, uh, these resources that the VA uses and, and the regulations, the only body that can hold them accountable is, is our Congress. Uh, on the federal level. And so calling on them as, as a state, as, as our whole state together, that we need to hold the VA accountable, um, even with, uh, with our representatives running a narrative that, they're, uh, that they care about our veterans and they're doing all this amazing things for our veterans. Many veterans are suffering in our communities. Uh, they're not getting the care that they need. And so we, we need to call on them to truly hold the VA accountable to all these promises that are being made. Um, just yesterday, we had another veteran in Fort Harrison that committed suicide uh, on the in the parking lot at Fort Harrison. And so the problems are still there. They're still going to continue. The average wait time for a mental health appointment in Fort Harrison is 41 days. 
so veterans are still not getting the care that they need and, and not getting it in a timely fashion. And so uh, we need to hold them accountable and, and we need to call on them. So we will have that up there in, in Helena this next legislative session. We're also going to be working on universal licensure, which allows uh, somebody who already has a license and is operated in, in another state as a as a doctor or as a hairstylist or as an electrician to allow them to come to Montana and use that same certificate here in Montana and not have to jump through all the hoops and start the process over again, which is going to be great for our veteran population that um, that served if you were an electrician or a pipe fitter or you had any of those kind of certifications while you served the country, that you can come back to Montana and still continue to use those skills that you gained in the military without having to start a whole apprenticeship program or, or having to start over. Um, letting you put those skills to use in our communities right now because you're already skilled at what you do. Yeah, and we only have a little bit here left. Uh, I have to let you go here soon. But um, I'm wondering, just as a final note, last time I had you on, we we talked more about foreign policy. And, mm -hmm. and in this podcast, the focus has been healthcare. But I'm wondering if you have any just um, final like assessments about our current position. Uh, I know we're currently going, uh, we're currently escalating uh, the war in Ukraine. And we had a scare a couple days ago where um, it looked like it, it appeared initially that Russia had killed two civilians in Poland. And we later found out that they were uh, uh, Ukrainian um, air defense missiles. So I, I'm wondering just what, what's your assessment? Are you optimistic? Are you uh, pessimistic? And are there any pieces of legislation you're looking at, I guess, uh, in the future here? In that regard. Yeah, in the state of Montana, we're not looking at any legislation, but on the federal level, we are looking at AUMF repeal. Uh, AUMF is the authorization for use of military force. Um, since World War II, our country has not declared official war anywhere, but we've fought across the globe in multiple different conflicts without an official declaration of war. So we are calling on our, our delegates to take back their constitutional war power. Um, to debate that uh, those different conflicts and make sure that we are sending our men and women exactly where they need to go. In regards to the Russia and, and Ukraine issue going on right now, um, the the Poland scare was a, is a perfect example of why we need to go to the table and look for a diplomatic process to to end this conflict. Uh, Zelensky has already proven that he can negotiate with Russia when they negotiated opening trade routes through Ukraine for Russian soldiers. Um, they've already proven that the negotiations are possible, and we need to open the door to try to end this conflict. We're skirting, skirting at uh, World War III with a nuclear power, uh, and that's not going to be a benefit to anyone. Uh, and and most, most definitely, it's not going to benefit Ukraine. Um, we keep sending money to, to Ukraine because we want to help them, uh, but, but it continues to look like we're actually doing more damage, and we're, we're pushing this conflict out farther and farther the more we continue to, to, to support them financially without trying to open the door to negotiations. Yeah. And, and for anyone who was on Twitter and has listened to uh, some of my recent podcasts, you'll, you'll uh, you would have seen how crazy Twitter was and how quickly people were um, clamoring for war and saying mm -hmm. that uh, on, on false evidence, we needed to rush into war and we needed to, um, uh, appeal to Article Five, and and all of NATO needed needed to directly intervene in Ukraine. Right, um, and and that just shows that I think the, I think the lesson there, um, and how quickly it was found out that these were false reports. 
um, the lesson is that people really need to have a cool head and people need to examine the evidence and, and sit down and have Congress debate this before uh, we rush into any conflict like this, especially at this stakes. Yeah, and that's, right. that's why we call for a realistic and restrained foreign policy that, that we hold back until we have all the answers, until we know the strategic goals, that we, we actually have something in place when we engage somewhere, if, if we even need to engage. And that's, that's something that hasn't been talked about is, is what is our role in this conflict? How does this benefit us? How does this benefit the world? And our current foreign policy that we've had for the last 70 or 80 years of just intervening has not made the world a safer place. Um, war has continued to happen. Terrorist attacks have continued to happen around the globe. Um, we haven't prevented any of that from happening with that being the, the goal of the, the international war on terror. Um, we haven't stopped ter terrorism. And so we need to go back to the drawing board and figure out what we need to do to accomplish what, what our goals are and, and if those goals are actually sustainable goals. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming back on. I, I really appreciate it. If there's anything uh, you'd like to say, just as a final note, or um, if, the, if there's anywhere, anywhere that people can find you on social media, just uh, give them that and we can let you go. Absolutely. You can reach out to us at uh, cv4a.org. We've got more information about the VA reform stuff that we're working on, more information about uh, the foreign policy stuff that we're working on. Uh, if you're here in Montana and you want to want to sit down and talk with me and, and learn a little bit more about what we're doing, uh, you can reach out to me at 406-860-7635 or reach us on Facebook at Concerned Vets Montana on Facebook. Awesome. And everyone remember to subscribe to this, share this podcast if you like it, um, give it a like, and then check out my most recent podcast. I've done two live streams on uh, my latest Substacks, and I recently interviewed Dan Sanchez, who was my boss at the Foundation for Economic Education. So I recommend you check all of those things out. And uh, yeah, remember to subscribe.